1: You
0: built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is
2: the stupid cancer show. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs>
3: Hello there,
1: children! Hey, hey, kids! <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the stupid cancer show, Matthew Jackson. Nothing is anything wrong with us. Because he has a lot of chit spots. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
4: Monday, December 3rd, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 16-year young adult survivor of
0: pediatric brain cancer. And my name is Kenny Kane, EVP of Mission and co-founder of Stupid Cancer, and we are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. That's right. It's not okay that 72,000
4: young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. All right, tonight's show is featuring the epic science of chronobiology. What the hell epic. is that? Epic science. It's epic. Epic science it's of chronobiology. Bracket, bracket epic. It is bracket epic. Bracket epic. chronobiology. Exactly. Hashtag FYOF. With Professor Donald McEachern, uh Ph.D. at the School of Biomedical Engineering Science and Health Systems for Drexel, I saw this guy give a presentation. I was blown away. Like we gotta be on the show. Amazing stuff tonight. I'm excited. All right, um, kicking it off in our in our first survivor spotlight, Erica Lotti, young adult survivor of breast cancer, writer for the Huffington Post, and author Lorna Brunel, thyroid cancer survivor, and wrote a book called Dirty Bombshell. We're gonna hear about that and about the second half of the show, Kenny.
0: All right. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, online at stupidcancer.org, the largest support community for the young adult cancer movement. And the Stupid Cancer,
4: welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. And a special welcome to our guest co-host, Annie Goodman. Everybody. Welcome back.
3: Thank and you. Keep showing up. I know, you guys keep asking me, so yeah. here I am. Welcome Being back.
4: So, welcome back. Thank you. We have a nice full studio tonight. Our VP programs might be I have Allie Ward in the house.
1: Hey everybody. How are you? I'm doing great. Really? I am. I'm in wonderful New York City. <laughs> that is
4: is that all it takes? <laughs> she's uh,
0: she's giving some some sarcastic looks right now. <laughs> you the, are not a city girl on the radio.
3: I am so a country girl. This city are not. scares me. I it almost does.
0: asked you before, like when are you going to move here?
3: Uh, when the well,
0: our first conversation was, would you move to New York? And she's like, hell to the no. <laughs>
3: when hell freezes over. Well,
4: she's enjoying telecommuting in the meantime. Yeah. We got our our good looking interns in the back there, mountain taming. Hey guys, they waving on radio.
0: And don't forget, employee number four.
4: Employee number four. Is sitting here. Oh, Maureen's, uh, you know what? I totally, you know, she's uh, obscured. Matt has uh, Sweet, w- what is it? Uh, 40/20? Forty <laughs> twenty? Forty
3: twenty. No,
4: seriously, like she's like right in the line of sight there. Well, she's waving. And I can't use my cancer card in this room anyway, so
3: yeah. We all in got a 180
4: one. degree uh, stupid cancer uh, It is quite warm. It is quite warm. Well, we didn't kick on the AC all day. No, that's right. It's your fault. We'll just keep continue wearing our hoodies. Yeah, Right, fantastic. Yes.
3: <laughs> wonderful,
4: wonderful. Well, anyway, welcome, Allie, back to New York City, the land that you hate.
3: <laughs> I get to meet with all of you guys face-to-face when I'm here, so that's a benefit.
4: Well, I also love when we have real actual guests here in the studio, and Erica Lotti is here. I'm staring at her. She was the one obscuring the lovely morning suite employee number four. Sorry about <laughs> that. No, it's all your fault for sitting where you're supposed to be.
2: <laughs> Trying to get really big in front of her, too. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
4: Anyway, so what's going on? How you been,
0: Kenny? I've been well, Matthew. How are you? <laughs> That's the worst. Part. <laughs> I've been well, Matthew. So, Kenny, tell me what's going on in your life. Uh, it was a, a weekend of my usual debauchery, <laughs> peppered in with a. Hey, uh, didn't you
4: say your friends told you you drink too much?
0: Who said that? <laughs> All of your friends. <laughs> Somebody said that to me. No, it started when my when my grandma around Thanksgiving dinner asked us uh, if I had gotten a free turkey. Because of shopping at, like, the grocery mm-hmm. store and right, right. I like, well, Grandma, you know, the beer distributor doesn't really give away free turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> You're shopping at the wrong store. Exactly.
4: So, uh, And, right. and Annie, you have great news.
3: Yes. On Friday was my last day of treatment, so I am officially done. I had my last radiation, so I no longer have to go to the doctor every single day. I mean, I still have to go, like, all the time to the doctor. It's... It's my favorite hobby. Not really my favorite, but <laughs> probably my number one hobby is going to the doctor, besides working and living. But um, working and living. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very happy. Living is put, one
4: of my favorite hobbies too. Yeah. Allie, agree?
3: Yeah, I guess so. You guess so? But oh. I'm glad to. I'm glad to put this behind me and move on to whatever is next.
4: That's awesome. Yeah. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a big deal. Yeah. People always say, and I remember this too, and this goes for maybe every cancer patient, but the last treatment is always the scariest?
3: My last, radiation wasn't as bad for me, like, mentally as as chemotherapy was. Okay. Um, Chemotherapy, I fully expected to have, like, 20 nervous breakdowns my last time. Um, the head nurse, who I worked with the most, wasn't there for my last one. She was there for my next-to-last one. Right. So we, like, had a moment, and I cried, and then we hugged, and she's like, I will see you soon, I promise. And uh, you get, was it, like, Stockholm Syndrome, where you, like, miss your captors? Right, yeah. I kind of have that a little bit with my doctors. I, I miss them a lot. That's
0: why I come to work so, every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: So uh, my last chemo was a little bit more emotional. Cause right. But then at the same time, everyone's like, you have to go out and celebrate. I was like, celebrate what? I feel like crap. Right. Like, I'll celebrate when I feel better. Everyone's like, let's go out to eat. I was like, I'm nauseous. Can I wait till I feel a little better? Right. But um, it was a little overwhelming. I definitely, like, choked up a little bit, like, when I got to work, when I was waiting in line for Starbucks. it doesn't, it hits you, like, what just happened? Right. Like, it was nine months almost to the day after my diagnosis that I finished treatment. So...
2: It's a little, you you know, could have had a
3: baby. I, you know, I could have. <laughs> Although. How dare you not have a baby? I know. I mean, one day, but yeah, it's it's interesting. For right now, I'm enjoying the break. Yeah. I hasn't like I. It's funny you get like the discharge papers that were like these are all the things that you're gonna experience, and the biggest uh, section was one of them. Aruba. I wish. <laughs> 2013. Okay. Uh, but one of them was the biggest impact was emotional. Right. And they always say to expect to feel like anxiety, depression, whatever.
4: I had post-traumatic stress
3: Oh, I, after
4: I, my last radiation treatment. I was just so used to feeling mm-hmm. like crap. And I still felt like crap for like two years afterwards, but the crap slowly waned. But you just get so used to that routine of getting up in the morning, throwing yep. up 30 times. My dad would drive me every day to Sloan Kettering, throwing up in the car along the way, throwing up at Sloan Kettering, getting the treatment, throwing up along the way getting home going to sleep and repeat rinse and repeat so 33 days of that yeah, and then the last awful. day like it just it's just over
3: yeah um i definitely had some ptsd i had some trouble going back to certain buildings right um like the building i was diagnosed in the first time i had to go back there i was like sitting in a cab and had like a breakdown um, it's gotten easier because that's where I had radiation So you go there right. like five days a week Yeah, It's like a, you get over it pretty quickly But um, yeah I definitely have Certain things That remind me of whatever Happened this day I wore this that you know the day I was diagnosed I wore this necklace I haven't worn it since So there's like little Residual things Right. Um. But you know every day hopefully Gets a little bit easier and Allie what about you? I still break out and sweat every time I pull up to Johns Hopkins. Really? Even thinking about it, I get like a physical reaction. I hate that place because it just has so many bad memories.
4: Yeah. Mhm.
3: I have like smells. Mhm. So my oncologist and I always joked with them about it. They had eucalyptus hand wash, and Uh-oh. it makes me want to hurl every time I smell it. And it actually got to the point uh, later on in chemotherapy where I couldn't even use that soap. They had to keep it. They had a separate one that was like lemon,
4: right. and that was the
3: only one I was able to stomach. I had a the same, similar
4: experience with like blue Listerine. Mm-hmm. That was all they used as Sloan as blue Listerine, because you had to gargle before and after radiation, right? It would clean out your teeth or any whatever. Uh, I'm glad you found toothpaste in the meantime. <laughs> yeah, but and and Alanis Marsh says, ironic. For yeah. some reason, that was on the radio every freaking morning on the way to Sloan Kettering. Mm-hmm. It was it was uh. January and February of 96 when it came Mm -hmm. out. So that was terrible. I can't listen to that song.
1: I ate so much
3: chicken noodle soup while I was going through chemo and therefore... Like
4: ramen noodles?
3: No, just regular homemade chicken noodle soup. Right, And then threw up so much homemade chicken noodle soup. Uh The smell turns my stomach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't have saltines. Luckily for me, um, the chemotherapy I was on did definitely cause like nausea and things like that, but they pumped me full of like literally for anti-vomiting medication, so I never had that awful side effect, but I definitely had, like, no appetite and nausea, so the idea of even eating a saltine, ugh.
4: Well, I I see our institute, I guess, Erica's chomping at the bit because she's been nodding this whole time, so let's do a proper introduction.
3: Yeah. Erica Lottie is a cancer survivor and advocate for young cancer patients. She's a graduate student in food studies at NYU and blogs about cancer and food for the Huffington Post. Welcome, Erica.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: I feel like we're a little bit of soul sisters because we both had breast cancer around the same, you know, I just finished, we're about the same age, and... Your hair's
4: about the same length. Yeah,
3: too. you're definitely ahead of me, so I'm a little jealous, but, you know, three, four months, I'll be where you're at.
2: Yeah, and you can look forward to this yeah. awkward phase. You know, awkward phase beats smooth head. Good point. Yeah. Absolutely. So, no, I'm point. loving it. I love yeah. my hair right now. I take the awkward phase.
4: So I was, uh, I read the Huffington Post every day and I saw an article that Erica had written and what was the name of the article?
2: Uh, so it was like, uh, why does my cancer have a logo?
4: Right. It was one of those anti-pink.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. so no, yeah. we like those. Yeah. It was in October and I had, I hadn't actually gone public in many ways with my cancer at all and that was kind of my first coming out. I'd I'd done a bit of fo- Facebook posting here and there, but um, that was my uh, coming out public. Yeah, so I'm like, I gotta opinion. find this person.
4: I gotta find this person. So I went to like LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever, and then ultimately got wanted to get on to the show. And we were all booked for October, um, and then just figured, you know, we're not really a body part specific broadcast, <laughs> but we just uh, anybody that that has a, a sort of this diffidence against the establishment, you know, was great.
2: Thanks, yeah No, it was really enjoyable to write it It was cathartic I mean, I think I said that also even in, in my follow-up piece um, But yeah, it, it became really a different Everything changed in October for me From October before Because I think you walk around with a real What I said in the article Is a real bubblegum sort of idea about breast cancer right. And that was just shattered for me Well, um, talk
4: us through your life, PC Pre-cancer, what were you up to?
2: Yeah, um, I was studying at NYU uh, like I am again now. Uh, I've been in a master's in food studies for a couple of years slowboating boating it because I work full-time as well at an architecture firm as the office manager. So I was just kind of finding my way. I'd been in New York a few years just doing my thing. Where are you originally from? I'm from Minnesota. Oh, wow. Yeah. So...
4: Minnesota, eh? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm from Minnesota. So um, <laughs> Yeah, I was just like... You know, drinking, partying, eating, school, work The usual thing that everyone that's 28 does in the city um, Right, right I just kind of gone through a breakup not long before And it was the holidays And I was home in Minnesota for Thanksgiving And I felt a weird lump in my armpit Um I came back and got it checked out And um, I had always had this syndrome called like Polycystic breast syndrome It's something that like, I call it lumpy boob syndrome Because <laughs> basically it was like I would go in for gynecological visits And they would do a breast exam And they'd be like I can't tell what's going on Like that could be bad That could be fine I have no idea And so then I would get it checked out You know through radiology As much as anyone who's really concerned About breast cancer in their 20s would So maybe like once every year and a half
4: Right
2: and it had been a while, and so I finally, once found once I found this lump in my armpit, went in to get that checked at radiology, and then they did the breast as well and found a very, very large tumor, 6 centimeters, wow. and then yeah. the fact that it had spread to the lymph as well. But, I mean, one of the things that I really want to emphasize is the fact that I had sort of been of the mindset that, well, the doctor can't tell what's going on with my boobs and their lumpiness, so how can I? Right. And that's, okay. And that's not necessarily the case because upon reflection, I did notice some funky, and like I was like, oh, you know what? Like I could have been paying more attention, even to your lumpiness. Like you can yeah. be tuned in with that. Sure, but that's like you can't blame I'm yourself for blaming. that. I'm not blaming. No, but I also I'm totally not blaming. I'm not angry at myself, but at the same time, I want people to know like. If someone tells you you have lumpy boobs, like, don't check out from, you right. know, like, thinking I'm, anything of
3: it. I went, your our stories are so similar. and yeah. I went through the same thing. I'm lucky. I actually found a gynecologist who put, like, the fear of God in me, so I got a mammogram, like, 36 hours later, because I think so many doctors, when you don't, and you don't have family history.
2: No, nothing.
3: And I didn't either, and um, so many could dismiss it as nothing. Mine, luckily, put the fear of... Baby Jesus in my head, and I <laughs> ran to get a mammogram. And I'm lucky I did, because if i had put it off, like who knows what would have been. But yeah, yeah. So
4: how did you manage to navigate your your job? Did you tell your employer you had insurance? You know, and 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 the second question is how quickly was it? I call it the the uh, the oh shit window, between when you're told that this is what's going on and when you actually start anything that you need to get done.
2: Yeah. Um. So the situation was that. It was stage three, um, into the lymph, wrapped up, the tumor was wrapped up with muscle and bone. So this was like December 8th or 9th last year, Um, so it's almost my cancerversary. Um, And because of the situation of it being wrapped up with other, uh, you know, muscle and bone, I had to act very quickly to do chemo so that it would shrink the tumor and then be operable because when I was diagnosed, it was inoperable and um so that all went down within 2 weeks, 3 weeks. I, I started chemo on December 27th, so I had to spend a very unfun Christmas mm-hmm. here in New York where I had I had planned to be in California and everything changed and within 3 weeks I had done like, you know, core biopsies, regular biopsies, 25 mammograms. I mean, you name it. I'd been in and out of PET scans and MRIs and and I was in the chemo ward, like, two days after Christmas last year. So it, it was, oh, shit, well, no, it was yeah. three weeks. And, and what hospital? Um, So I, I did my uh, oncology at Beth Israel. Okay. Um, and I did it at the Chelsea campus. It's, like, 15th Street and, and 8th, 8th, between 8th and 9th Avenue. Okay. Yeah, it's a lovely facility. I have an amazing doctor there. And then uh, for surgery, which happened post-chemo, I went up to Sloan-Kettering and for radiology as well.
4: Now, the question we always ask through the lens of the young adult world, it's very different than being 80 or 8. Were
0: mm-hmm. you
4: at all uh, made aware of young adult resources or peer support, or was it all just breast cancer and pink nonsense?
2: It was nothing. I My oncologist is absolutely amazing, um, so he connected me with another one of his patients, and we texted but never met up and that was literally the only resource offered to me um within young adult cancer communities uh, i had absolutely no one to even look at in the chemo ward uh there was one day i remember i walked in it was like my fourth chemo and there was a younger guy sitting there and i was like oh my god oh my, <laughs> hello like, What's your story? How are you uh-huh. doing? And he was like, Whoa. And I'm like, <laughs> I like, tried to make a joke. I'm like, It's the kids' corner. And he was yeah. like, is, we, had, we hit it off. But like, it was uh, literally the only time I saw anyone else under, I don't know, you would say even 50 in there. Yeah,
4: so that whole we still have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. That this still happens at Sloan Kettering in New York. And we exist, and the Young Survival Coalition exists, and even the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is impressed, but they have a young adult program. And Sloan has a young adult program that they tout all the time. That's the Penny Damascus uh, woman that we talked about. Penny runs the young adult program, and no one told you about it, huh?
2: Well, I mean, I didn't get into Sloan until later. I mean, so I did all my chemo. I think Beth Israel in particular, I mean, I had amazing care. The the nurses and the doctors are incredible. But it's definitely um, sort of, I don't know how to say this, like, Lower Manhattan-y. Like, it's, there's a lot of older generation that mm. goes there, so that mm-hmm. place in particular wasn't exactly kid-friendly. Right, mm-hmm. all right. Um, no, I didn't have a lot of access to resources, which is why it was so amazing when I start. My dad passed me one of Suleika Juad's um, New York Times pieces in her, mm-hmm. her Life Interrupted column, and I reached out to her, and through her was able to connect all these other people. But if she hadn't been doing that column, I mean... I was sort of grappling with where to turn.
4: Yeah, I actually got the opportunity to meet her while she was still getting... oh Did she tell you the story? I was her first cancer date.
2: No, she didn't. I huh. met
4: her and Seamus when she was like the second day in the infusion room and I had to get all garbed out for the immunity stuff and we had a really wonderful conversation. I introduced her to most of the younger organizations that you probably are halfway down the rabbit hole with at this point.
2: Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to get more and more into it. I mean, I even feel like it's still difficult for us to carve out those spaces and right. find those opportunities. But yeah, no, I, like the more I get tapped in with certain people, the more you have opportunities. Right. Questions.
3: Uh, so you were HER2-positive, neg- so positive, yeah. you just finished up Herceptin.
2: I'm finishing my last Herceptin treatment on December 21st. Oh,
3: wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, so that'll
2: be my last quote-unquote cancer treatment. Mm-hmm.
3: Do you go into tamoxifen after that? No,
2: I'm not, I'm not a candidate for okay. that. Okay, got it. So I'm like I'm literally entering the abyss of like doing nothing Mm -hmm. after December twenty first, which is terrifying. I'm in
3: I'm in the nothing. I'm triple negative, so I'm in the nothing zone too. We're actually
2: nothing. Yeah,
3: I just hit the nothing on Friday. So, you know, it's scary but just like you and I both did the most aggressive treatment one can do And you just have to hope and pray
2: It's just funny I think people think that it's very exciting to finish treatment Because yeah. it's like oh you don't have to show up You don't have to do anything anymore But for me it's like It's the most terrifying aspect so far Is to jump off that cliff And like not be doing something Not be acting against the cancer So even though I don't have technically have cancer right now But to go off of that medical grid that you're so accustomed to at this point. Well, Sloan Kettering has
4: a program called their Long-Term Follow-Up. Did they tell you about that?
2: No. It's run by,
4: of course,
1: not.
4: it's run by a guy named Charles Sklar. And basically what they do is, and he's sensitive to the young adult world where it's very different than like, you know, go kiss your grandkids and go to Florida, you know, or, or go back to fourth grade with mom. You know, it's it's uh, kind of like you get like a report card almost. It's like you should know to come back in six months or you should get a blood test on your own every three years, every three months. Or just, you know, see a GP who is onco-friendly, you know, even within the NYU, or the excellent catering system, you know, where, where if you get, a, you, know, you could have it forwarded to the doctors and your oncologists, but you don't have to deal with them. You know, okay. it's, it's it's almost like navigation. It's a very, very... smooth. I joined it... I was like their guinea pig when they started it like eight years ago. I just wanted to see what the hell it was all about. I didn't need it, but I was okay. really excited mm-hmm. just to see what they did for you. So it's actually pretty comprehensive. So I'd, I'd tell you to tell Sloan it exists and, <laughs> then, and then ask them how to sign up for it.
2: Okay, awesome. Yeah.
3: Yeah. One of my questions is you're a food studies student. So how has your studies kind of changed since becoming a cancer patient, you know, especially... All the information there about how to change our diets. We were talking about before the show about how difficult it is to alter your diet to be a cancer survivor. How has your how have your studies changed?
2: Yeah, well, it's really interesting is that I I've um, been studying the prison food system for a really long time. Those guys eat well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, they
2: they don't eat differently that much from, for example, students or university level students. And um, what I found really interesting was that I'd been dialoguing with prisoners and, and trying to understand like what it's like to have a lo- like that lack of choice and like to be sort of confined and to to have you know limited mobility and limited freedoms and one of the things that became really clear to me as I got sicker and sicker was that this is very similar mm-hmm. to being sort of in prison like when you have cancer, you have, like, a, a really limited freedom for quite a while. It could be, I mean, for me, it's almost a year where your choices, everything you do is constricted. Mm-hmm. And so that was really fascinating to sort of play up those parallels in my work. Um and figure out, and like, it helped me really get deeper into the prison food system, but then it's also like, I looked at hospital food when I was at Sloan for surgery, I was like, what's this menu like, what does it mean, like, how are we helping patients, how are we not helping them, how are we doing wrong, and I mean, institutional food across the board is so similar, Uh, frozen food, you know, these big Mm. corporations are the ones providing it, it doesn't differ that much from military to hospital to school to prison, which I found fascinating, but yeah, and then of course, the the more moralistic layer is how I'm going to move forward with my diet and struggle to be really strict about maintaining health And lifestyle. what is the
4: minimum percentage of cockroach you will allow in your food?
2: <laughs> um, it's like a two-to-one ratio. Okay. <laughs> I
4: just watched this documentary film um, called... Uh, forks over knives it's
2: amazing it was
4: i was really moved by it yeah. really moved by it i mean it was different than like food ink it was different than a lot of the you know th- there were some fruity-ish kind of food documentaries out there, like you know king corn or whatever like anti monsanto but this is like really practical
2: yeah for us especially yeah yeah
4: so what's your take on that are you vegan
2: vegetarian i'm not i believe that Meatosaurs. animal proteins have a great place in our diets um I'm totally, like, Aristotelian, everything in moderation, sort of of the Michael Pollan camp, but less elitist. I think <laughs> less I, elitist. I think if you give it a good whirl every day to, like, you know, eat food, mostly plants, not too much, right. it's kind of the best policy. I'm not amazing at it myself, but I I try.
4: Right, because the whole, the whole piece was very anti-animal meat.
2: It was. That's the one thing about that documentary that i found troubling because i think i'm i and a lot of my nutritionist friends believe that animal protein has a great place in a diet even for someone like a survivor um you can certainly replace that with you know different sort of proteins but i think that the issue is more the way that the united states and other uh large countries slaughter their meat and raise factory farm meat, and that's the thing they kind of had to take a really strong stance against. Right. But if you are aware of that stuff and you're interested in where your food comes from, then you can you can get great, interesting, grass-fed meat that had a life. Right. <laughs> and I think that's a great part of a diet.
4: So your master's is going to be in?
2: It's actually a, a master's of arts and food studies.
4: So what kind of thesis might you write?
2: So my thesis was on prison food. I'm presenting. Oh, um, that was the November whole thing. Oh, camp, capstone right? yeah. coming up. Wow, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm graduating. Good luck for that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm.
4: You're on the uh, three and a half year plan, then, right?
2: I I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I've been going for a long time.
4: And it was on the five year plan. Yeah, that was undergrad. underground <laughs> five year plan. <laughs>
0: Oh,
3: well. Yeah,
4: exactly. What's the rush? Exactly. Well, you're going to stick around here for the yeah. show so yeah. you can interact with all of our other guests. I know Lorna, she got a great story and a great book. So so thank you, Erica Lotti, for thank being our so guest. Much. You thank get you. your own applause. And uh, let's go to the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, here at Stupid Cancer, we promote and host hundreds of U.S. events each year, and we don't want you missing out on any of them. What's going on, Kenny? All right, head
0: on over to events.stupidcancer.com. That is events.stupidcancer.com. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of your social and educational events nationwide. Something be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Coming up... In New York City, speaking of Sloan Kettering, we have a young adult post-treatment meeting on December 4th from 5.30 to 6.30. Uh, you can reach out to me via our uh, online form on our website if you want more information about that. We have on 12-12-12 in San Diego the inaugural Stupid Cancer Ungala, which I will be attending and hope to see you at. And finally, on Thursday, December 20th, Los Angeles We Spark Group. Again, reach out to me if you want any more information on that.
4: Okay, it is time to register for the sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults, April 25th through April 28th, 2013 at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. Join almost 650 of your fellow survivors, caregivers, advocates, and activists for a four-and-a-half-day week of awesome. Visit OMG2013.org today to sign up and learn more about the Players Club, which is an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement by fundraising. That's omg
0: 2013.org. The Stupid Cancer Store has a ton of awesome products for sale right now, from pins, pens, stickers, and lanyards, cycling shirts, and more. And the most amazing graphic tees you've seen. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. Check out stupidcancerstore.org.
4: And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 3,000 active members every single day. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors Patients, parents, and caregivers just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.com and sign up with one click through Facebook, and that is your Your Stupid Stupid Cancer News. News. All righty. Time to kick it up a notch. 7.30 on the Stupid Cancer Show. Lorna Brunel was diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer. Uh, on February 2nd, 2005, she had a complete thyroidectomy at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary in Boston. Upon diagnosis, she began writing a daily journal with entries to help mark the progress of her recovery. After two years of writing, the excerpts became a book called "Dirty Bombshell: From Thyroid Cancer Back to Fabulous," is a timeline of hope and healing that will help you find the strength to make your way through cancer and fight back to be fabulous. Please welcome the one and only Lorna Brunel. Lorna.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
4: Oh, so excited to have you on the show finally.
1: Me too. I'm pumped. Thank you.
4: No, it's great. We've got two breast cancer survivors, a brain cancer survivor, ovarian survivor, and a, and uh, and you thyroid. So we're 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 like
1: got everything covered. Yeah, we're, we're covering it. all of
4: our bases tonight on the show.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, and congratulations to Erica. Thank you. Yeah, so no one great. else, just Erica. <laughs> well, <laughs> I just heard, I just heard Erica's part of the story. I just walked out of a voice lesson. <laughs>
4: oh, oh, that's right. You are a singer. That's correct. <laughs> yes,
1: yes.
4: All right. So, so I just would love you to start with your story because the the book is phenomenal and it's just a really Thank great. Thank you. It's it's just you know we like to talk about how you know it, it, we're not our grandparents' generation and we really try right. to it, use humor and and expression in a way that's a little you know. You know, non traditional from the old school pers- perspective, and it just right. frames the way our generation deals with this so uniquely, and you're no exception. So, talk us through. All right, 2004. What's going on with you before December 15th?
1: Okay, thanks. Well, in 2004, I was singing at a funeral, oddly enough, and I kept feeling a lump in my throat. And I thought, well, it must be allergies. Maybe it's the lilies. Maybe it's, um, you know, something happening that I ate. And it just kept happening over and over again. And I kept blaming it on food or allergies or the environment. And then I was in a doctor's appointment, completely non-related to anything with cancer. And we did a neck check. And when he, when the doctor was touching my neck, at one point he said, "Have you had any difficulty with your throat?" And he, itching, tingling, um, obstruction when you're swallowing or speaking and I thought oh my gosh yes I have for a few months now. So I had an ultrasound and then right from the ultrasound he sent me in for a biopsy and then within a day after the biopsy I found out that I had thyroid cancer. So it was pretty shocking because my family didn't have a a large history of cancer. My uncle had liver cancer a few years prior but I didn't really make the connection um, that anything would ever happen to my thyroid and honestly I didn't even know what was wrong with my thyroid when I found out it had cancer. I didn't even know what it did to begin with so it was like oh my gosh my thyroid has cancer. What does my thyroid do and what's, what's life going to be like without it? Um, So it was shocking for me, and as a singer and an actor and a teacher, I use my voice all the time, and it was really scary because my doctor told me that when I had the surgery, there was a high chance that I might lose my voice if the laryngeal nerve was hit during the surgery um, or nicked, I would have a raspy voice or I wouldn't be able to project above a whisper, may not be able to sing again, may not be able to teach again, use my voice for extended periods of time. So it was really scary for me. Um, but then I did some research, and one of the best decisions I made was I fired the first surgeon that I met. And in my book, I refer to him as the Bowtie Bastard. Um, <laughs> he was just—he was awful and scary and um, just didn't want to spend any time putting my fears to rest, wasn't very clear with how my voice would be at the end of the treatment, and uh, was just really nasty so I started researching and I found this rock star of a doctor over at Mass Eye and named Greg Randolph and he uses this equipment called nerve monitoring system and it's kind of like the game Operation when we're kids when he gets close to the laryngeal nerve in surgery it actually beeps and asks him to sort of back off and that is honestly I think what saved my voice and of course Dr. Randolph saved my career and my life so that was um, pretty cool hooking up with him and I spent all this time since my surgery trying to promote, raise awareness, work with Dr. Randolph, work with the Eye and Air Infirmary, speak at as many lectures as I can get to, hospitals, healing gardens, wellness centers, and just sort of raising awareness that you've got to be your best advocate, you've got to voice your opinion. If you don't like your doctor, if, you're, if it isn't a good fit, research and then move on. Find someone that you think is going to be the best person for the job. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Uh this is thanks. Annie.
3: I uh have Hi. to admit, I Googled you and I as I was preparing for the show and I watched some of your YouTube clips of you singing and you have the most amazing voice. Oh, thanks so, Annie. Thank you. Very good that you found a doctor who was able to help you out. And that's kinda cool Thank about that had like a little warning sign if it got too close. I've never heard that before. That's so yeah, it's, it's cool. so amazing like what doctors can do now. Yeah, she was,
4: it was Dr. Milton Bradley, I believe, was her surgeon. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's so crazy. Well, Dr. Randolph let me actually I got to scrub in and watch him perform the exact surgery he did on me. And I I watched him use the nerve monitoring equipment on somebody, and it was so cool to hear the machine beep and then he'd sort of readjust his instruments and go in at a different angle. It was fascinating, and the surgery takes longer that way, but it gets the job done, and it saves your voice. It saves your career, and it's not about being a famous singer or an actor. It's about singing a lullaby to your kids at bedtime or reading a book to somebody that you love or just talking with friends at a party without, you know, and being heard, you know. And if you have damage to the voice, you can't do any of that. You can't project in a room that's crowded. You can't speak for more than a few hours before your voice kicks out. So I'm grateful and blessed.
4: Well, you and I have a couple of things in common. I don't have a yes. day named after me in Boston. However, I was,
1: <laughs> I, I
4: was one of the 100 this year for the you Mass were. General Awards. I wasn't yes. able to be there. Um, yes. But congratulations to you. It was, it was really a wonderful Thank event you. I heard.
1: It was very cool, and Matt Damon was the speaker, and his, his dad is a survivor, so it was really great to hear somebody up there so well-known speaking so passionately about cancer and the work that we still need to do to eradicate this disease and come together to raise awareness. And when I saw your name in the book and I saw your face up on the wall, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to find this guy. He's like my idol. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, so it was an honor to be honored with you at the same time. And well, I want to I- get those... Go
4: ahead. No, I was going to say another thing we have in common is I well I'm not anymore but I was a concert pianist.
1: I saw that. And
4: uh, I had lost my career due to brain cancer and it took me years and years and years to start playing again.
1: Yes. But
4: I never got to do it as a career. But now, like you said, all I need to do is play for my kids and that's what I do. So it's
1: and you've got that. Yeah, I got that back. Yep. And your kids are adorable, and also I think I wish we had in common those flight socks that are up on your Facebook page. Oh, how
4: great were those! Those are in the airport? hot. Yeah.
1: I want those. Nothing
4: like, like I said, the flight socks gonna go well with my drinking shirt on the plane.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! Exactly. Uh, well, so and thyroid cancer is the fastest rising cancer in women in the United States. So I really encourage anyone that I meet, of all ages, because I've met girls 18 years old who have this disease, and um, it's really important to ask your doctor for a neck check. Even if you don't have any of the symptoms that I had that I blamed on allergies or blamed on food, um, get a neck check when you're at the doctor's. And is the that equipment... something you have
4: to request, or is that part of, like, a standard of care when you, you go to have... general?
1: You, thanks for asking. You have to request it. I mean, I was 33 when I had my first neck check, and I had something else going on in my body at the time PCOS, that's polycystic ovarian syndrome, and because of that, I had a weight gain, and I had some other symptoms that were connected to thyroid, so I think it triggered something in my endocrinologist, and he thought, hey, let's give this girl a neck check, because I had symptoms that presented as thyroid and polycystic ovarian, and he was right on. He found it the second he stuck his thumb in front of my, um, you know, my collarbone area, but it's amazing to me how many women ask for a neck check, and the the doctor said, you know, I get emails from all over the world, honestly, and people are like, I asked my doctor for a neck check, and they thought I was crazy. And it's just, it's a basic exam. You know, you don't even need equipment. You just, The doctor just literally touches your neck while you swallow a glass of water. Um, and that's how the whole thing started for me, something as basic as that. Um, and Dr. Oz did a cool clip on his show. People can jump on the Internet and see how you can actually do your own neck check at home in the mirror, which is kind of neat, too.
4: So let me ask you this because, sure. um, you know, this is through the lens of the young adult world and we, we sure. you know, I said we're sort of a, vi- a vivacious group. Yeah. Um, you know, thyroid cancer is the number one cancer in all young adults. And it like yep. you said, it's the fastest rising. It's disproportionate yep. to melanoma, yep. you know, and yep. all that stuff. So, uh, what do you say to people that say it's like cancer light? Like you got off easy. It's the good cancer.
1: Yeah. Oh I my mean, gosh, that's such a hot topic right now because of um, you know so many celebrities that are coming forward admitting they've had cancer, like that beautiful girl from Modern Family, um, and of course Brooke Burke right now. So right. people say it's the good cancer, and it just infuriates so many people. If you go on the internet, people are like blowing up over it. Um, and good cancer was one of the titles I sort of contemplated from, my book. And the um president of FICA, Gary Bloom, reached out to me and we talked FICA is the yep, okay, wonderful guy and he said, Please don't do this I've spent my whole life trying to make sure that people understand that there's no such thing as good cancer. If you say you have a really bad cold, how the hell do you say you have good cancer? So after speaking to him, I'm like, you know what, I was going to do a play on words like having cancer was a good thing for me because it opened up my eyes, it gave me a second chance, it helped me use my voice to help other people, yada, 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 like, you know, rainbows and kumbaya. But he was right. I ended up going back to the other title. And um, when I meet people and they say it's the good cancer, I I try to explain. In my situation, it had gone into my lymph nodes, um, which is very common for thyroid cancer, and a lot of people don't don't even think about that. It was in my neck, in my lymph nodes. So anytime I cough or sneeze, you guys were talking about PTSD earlier in the interview, I always assume in the back of my mind if I've got a cough for more than two or three days, oh, I have lung cancer or my cancer is back somewhere else because it was in my lymphs. And then when I explain that to people, they're like, oh, we never even made the connection that that it can go into your limb or We never made the connection that it can go into your chest cavity or your breast, you know, your breast area. And I've met a lot of women that start with thyroid cancer and that it ends up somewhere else within five years, ten years. So I think just explaining that it isn't a walk in the park. I had one person who said, oh, I, my cousin had thyroid cancer, and she said her wisdom teeth removal was actually more of a bitch than the thyroid cancer. <laughs> and it was like, well, what are you talking about? We have to take medication for life. Our meds are being changed constantly. My meds are changed probably two two or three times a year. Um, I'm alive every morning with energy and perkiness in my voice because I'm taking meds. Um, I have to have an ultrasound every six months. I'm doing labs every three months. Um, You know, I'm not off the hook for life. So I try to remind people of that, too.
3: What kind of follow-up
1: treatment, oh, no, no, follow-up I
3: thought, treatment uh, did yeah. you have after your surgery? Did you have to do any chemotherapy or radiation
1: yeah. or pills? Well, in the or? thyroid cancer world, it's um, radioactive iodine, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. It's how the title of my book was born, right. if you will. So you <clears throat> you deplete your body of all thyroid medications. So my surgery was February 2nd. I went off all of my meds up until March 15th, the Ides of March, and Shakespeare lovers mm-hmm. know how that day went for Caesar. <laughs> um, so So I was in a big hospital in Boston, um, had some scans, took a small dose of radiation, then returned on St. Patrick's Day, so the joke was that I was going to turn green and glow in the dark because Mm -hmm. I was fully, fully nuclear. So I was in nuclear medicine, took radioactive iodine, became radioactive, had a Geiger counter in the room with a whole team, a radiation team, measuring me on the Geiger meter, Geiger counter, walking me to my car to make sure that I didn't radiate anybody, I had to sign this crazy, scary paperwork that said, like, in the interest of Homeland Security, you are basically a dirty bomb. Um, sign this paperwork and promise us you're going to go home and be quarantined for a few days so that you don't radiate anybody. So Those it was wacky. Letter. And, and <laughs> earlier, um, you guys were saying, like, well, did anyone give you any information or resources on young people to reach out to? I had nothing. Like, I would have loved to have reached out to somebody my age and said, hey, like, we're both... Bombs, we're, were we're dirty bombshells we're radioactive like let's talk we can use the phone. we can't go outside we can't touch paper because the reactor the the reactor will go off in the dump we can't touch plastic <laughs> because you know the police are going to come because it, everything registers now after 9-11 yeah. so you can't drive through a tunnel without a reactor going off you can't be near a state police officer uh, without the reactors going off so i was like All by myself, isolated, with no one my age to talk to about this crazy state of being a dirty bombshell. Um, So and so, so the play on words is about a year later. I spoke at Mass Pioneer, and I said, you know. In my 20s, I was a bombshell, and then in my 30s, I became a dirty bomb. So now I'm sort of trying to find a balance between being a dirty bomb and a bombshell, so I guess I'm a dirty bombshell. And I tried saying that in front of the doctors, too, when they were giving me the radiation, and nobody was laughing. It was like this (laughs) crazy, like, hazmat suit in my mind. It was like a scene from, like, Out of Space or something. And they bring down the meds and, you know, the skull and crossbone cooler, and they have lead gloves on, and it was really freaky. Um, so hopefully, my book will help people understand that as crazy as it is, and as scary as it is, you can get through it. Try to laugh. I met a girl um, through Facebook actually, who has these really cool green T-shirts, and she talks about being radioactive. And she, you know, she's trying to get a whole movement for people to you know know a little bit more about it, just like I am, because it's scary. Um, my mom, if I can give a shout out to her, is in her third year recovering from advanced breast cancer, and um, so her chemo treatments and radiation treatments, we were by her side the whole time. I felt like she had a lot of information. but. Here I am with the good cancer, quote-unquote, a few years prior to her diagnosis, and I didn't have any information regarding my treatment, regarding the radioactive iodine. I had to call and hound the hospital to get them to fax me the protocol because I knew I was going into quarantine, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. Can I be around my husband? Can I be around pets? Can I be around elderly? Like, what's the situation? How long do I have to be in quarantine? Um, So the book covers a lot of that. Um, well, no, we and have internet, about a
4: minute yeah. left. I don't want to cut sure. you off. We have about a minute left, sure. and I just wanted to uh, let people know that your website is dirtybombshell.net.
1: Yes. Yep. And
4: is the book on Amazon?
1: The book is on Amazon, and if anyone wants a signed copy, I'd be more than happy to mail that out for them for the holidays, or um, you know, they can reach me on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, Dirty Bombshell is on Facebook. At Lorna Brunell is on Twitter um uh, my email address is right up there on my website at net. and um i just want to thank you for everything that you're doing it's really phenomenal and i'm so grateful that you're you provided this form for young people
4: no and, and again you are the uh epitome of of the young adult movement you know i mean i'm 38 you're mm-hmm. you're, you're not Thirty-three anymore? You know? No, I'm not. But, but I feel like we, we, you know, we 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 yeah. we're like the old timers now. But yeah. we we paved the way to make it yeah. okay Thank To you. be irreverent and and sardonic about it and just right. really wear it on our sleeves with pride.
1: Absolutely. So congratulations
4: right. to you on everything.
1: Thank you so much, and best of luck.
4: Thanks, Lorna Brunell,
0: Thank everybody
1: Thank you. Okay, take care.
0: You have such a way with women. Who me?
4: Good thing you're married.
0: What?
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> if you could have said it better. <laughs> okay, well now onto the fun segment about sciencey stuff. But this is really cool. I got to tell you, I met this guy, heard heard him uh, give his presentations. I was really blown away. Professor Donald McEachern is the research professor and senior lecturer at Drexel University in the School of Biomedical Engineering, which is actually what I was going to major in before I became a musician. Clearly. Uh, <laughs> He uh, holds a B.A. in Behavioral Genetics from UC Berkeley, a Ph.D. in Neuroscience from UC San Diego, and an M.S. in Information Science from Drexel, clearly an underachiever. Clearly. His biomedical research has focused largely on chronobiology, which we will be discussing in depth, uh, biological rhythms, and human performance engineering, which investigate the impact of light and circadian manipulations on human productivity, health, and well-being. I can't tell you how impressed I was with this guy. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Don McEachern. Don. Don, you with us?
5: I have to say, after listening to your your previous guest, now I feel archaic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so far away from a young adult, I can't even see that far anymore.
4: You have the wisdom of years behind you. Oh,
5: that's a nice way to put it.
4: Yeah. (laughs) My dad told me that when he turned 65.
5: (laughs) That's what my son used to call me, archaic, so I guess you right.
4: <laughs> well, again, thank you. I'm sorry it took so long with the storm and everything, but it's really exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. So the, this whole, the whole reason I was uh, excited to have you on the show is because I saw your presentation I was really quite blown away with it. Um, but, but, but obviously the obvious question is, you know, the simplest uh, definition of chronobiology and, you know, how it relates to human health, because everything that you discussed is completely applicable to cancer survivorship?
5: Well, chronobiology is is the study of biological rhythms, oscillations in biological systems. And what's really interesting about this field is that one could actually argue that living systems are impossible without biological rhythms. Rhythms exist in biochemistry, in metabolic activity, uh, there are specific rhythms in, in brain function, cardiac function, um, everything from sexual behavior uh, to annual rhythms in psychiatric complaints and suicides. Um, so in a, in a very real sense, life is defined by the cycles uh, that it undergoes. And it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you think, why, why is there so much emphasis on biological rhythms? Why is it so, so important? And there are a number of reasons why you you evolve uh, biological rhythms. Uh, One thing is that biological feedback systems um, are inherently oscillatory. Control systems like that oscillate naturally. Uh, Engineers spend a great deal of our time sometimes trying to get rid of oscillations in engineered systems. But biological systems have evolved to make use of them. And they use them to control timing within the system, all complex goal-oriented systems, whether it's an automobile or a computer, require a timing mechanism to make sure that events occur in the proper order uh, and resources are available at the right time and are used in the right way. And we're used to, to taking our cars in to be tuned, and part of, of the process is to, to correct the timing when it goes bad. And the reason we take our cars in to tune them is that if we don't do this, they begin to waste fuel, they begin to deteriorate, their life expectancy goes down. We're very religious about tuning our cars, but we don't seem to pay much attention to the fact that we need to be temporally organized as well. So, it's Don, is it,
4: safe, is it safe to conflate that analogy with, you know, much like a car keeps you know, hitting the potholes and needs to be tuned up, the st- daily stressors in our life and just day-to-day existence gets us out of whack just by the very inherent nature of it being life?
5: Well, that's true. Uh, the, the, we evolved over the, the millennia, exposed to really very powerful geophysical cycles uh, caused by the Earth's rotation and revolution around the sun, the daily cycle and seasonal cycle. And those rhythms have worked to orchestrate all the other frequency rhythms within, within the body. It's a little bit like if you go into to uh, listen to an orchestra, and you arrive before the symphony begins, and each instrument is playing its own tune. Those tunes may be beautiful in and of themselves, but with each each instrument playing individually and not paying attention to the others, the result is noise. The circadian system, the 24-hour inherent periodicity within our bodies orchestrates the entire frequency system so that we are a symphony rather than noise. The problem is that our 24/7 society with artificial lighting available shift work um staying up to all hours and the pressures of life have begun to push us from that symphony into noise and there are serious side effects to that effect.
3: Wow, it's all so interesting. I I feel a little over my head right now with information. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things we were wondering is if maintaining temporal health is important, what kind of behaviors we we best to follow? For example, how can we keep our bodies in tune, you know, so to speak? Don't work the night shift. Yeah, true.
5: Well, I'm afraid that's probably true to a certain extent. Um, what you really want to do is try and keep as regular a schedule as possible. The, the difficulty is doing that in our, our modern urban society. Uh, so, for example, you would like to sleep on a regular cycle. When you go to sleep, you'd like to have uh, sleep in a very familiar area with low levels of light. The more light that you have uh, available while you're trying to sleep, uh, the more disrupted your rhythms can become, the less the, the quality of sleep that you obtain. If you continually shift from one kind of work schedule to another, uh, it's very hard for your rhythms to adjust. They, they begin to what we call desynchronize. They separate from each other so that you have multiple rhythms going on in the single body, uh, and in fact, they desynchronize from the outside world. And when that happens, you become more vulnerable. Uh, Shift work, as you mentioned, uh, has been linked by many studies, not all, but many, uh, studies with gastrointestinal problems, cardiovascular risk, uh, psychiatric risk, cognitive issues, sleep disorders, and recently with uh, cancer.
4: So, Don, is is there a correlation between, actually, this is kind of a, a pointed question, but we, you know, the the human population that lives, you know, near the North Pole, northern Alaska, northern Canada, the Scandinavian countries, do you, have they evolved over the last couple of you know centuries or, or generations to adapt to the climate where there's very little sunlight or very little darkness, or do, Have they just been dealing with higher levels of stress and suicide and and, and of that that ilk?
5: Uh, I'm not as familiar with that particular data, but I would probably, uh, from what I know, I'd say that they actually deal with a fairly high level of stress and that suicide rates can get very high. Alcoholism rates are very high uh, in those areas. It's a very stressful uh, form of life and i don't think i i'm sure there's some adaptation that's occurred in those populations but still you can see the stress that such an environment imposes on them
4: so even on top of the fact of eating well exercising looking out for your stress levels there are you know probably these subtleties that we're not even aware of within the circadian rhythms of our body that we have to you know understand more effectively to hopefully achieve more optimal health, correct?
5: Yes. Yes. Uh, temporal health is for reasons that, that I'm not really sure I can I can explain. Um fairly overlooked uh in healthcare uh, certainly in the United States. It's not as overlooked in Europe, but certainly it is, is not uh as emphasized here in the US as it should be.
3: Yeah, and you know, as I understand it, you're currently working with an architect, Doctor Eugenia Ellis. On applications of chronobiology to building design, can you elaborate on the research and what you hope to, you know, get out of this?
5: Well, one of the things that happens as you age, as humans age, um, myself being a good example, unfortunately, <laughs> uh-huh. um, is that 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 you develop a whole series of changes that sort of feed on each other. Uh, the the biological clock that times human circadian rhythms and most mammal circadian rhythms. The major pacemaker for that system is located in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus and this clock is called the suprachiasmatic nuclei or SCN for short. And when you're young, the SCN is, is fairly potent. It keeps your timing and it links the outside world through connections to the retina and your vision to the inside world, all the biological rhythms you're trying to control internally to maintain internal temporal order. As you age, the SCN begins to deteriorate. It's less effective. It's a less accurate clock. At the same time, uh, aging humans decrease their light sensitivity. So the the most powerful synchronizer you can get to maintain biological rhythmicity is the light-dark cycle. So at the very time when your internal clock is beginning to to degrade, your ability to detect light-dark cycles, which would help overcome that loss, is degrading as well. And so an an elderly human must be exposed to, in fact, a more powerful light-dark cycle than a younger person in order to achieve the same level of synchronization. But what actually happens is that elderly humans are often in environments where they do not get a very powerful light-dark cycle. The lights are either dim during the day or they're on at night to provide uh, caregivers with uh, visual access. And so the alternation of day and night that they absolutely need to be even more powerful than young, young people is much less powerful. And this creates a kind of perfect storm less light sensitivity, a degrading master pacemaker or biological clock, and an environment that actually contributes to circadian desynchronization. Gina and I think that if we can mimic the uh, gradual increase and decrease of solar radiation and match the frequency changes within a uh, residential living environment, we can help synchronize the elderly uh, and perhaps reduce uh, the loss of quality of life for some dementia patients, and in fact for for elderly patients in general.
3: I have a you know a related question, and it's to you know genetic mutations. And I was wondering if you feel that environmental factors, you know, I know you work a lot on like the so-called biological clock. How do uh you know I have a geni- I have a genetic mutation that led to me getting breast cancer at 30 years old. You know, do environmental factors play into this, or you know, I just I find it so interesting, like, what in your body sets off that it happens when it does.
5: Well, the, the, it's not all the details are not, not known that gives us all something to do. <laughs> um, but the, the pacemaker sets up a molecular rhythm, and it's interesting that in some forms of, of cancer, it appears that the genetic uh, mechanisms associated with the cancer are, in fact, in the clock gene the genes that actually control circadian rhythms and cell cycles. So there's growing evidence that when you damage that clock, you increase risk for various types of cancer. Um, but basically, I was interested, your previous guest talked about radiation, and there's a, there's a classic experiment in, in the, I believe it's in the 70s, where a scientist exposed populations of mice at different times of day to 550 Rankins of x-radiation. And at one time of day, the eight-day survival ship was 100%. Every single mouse survived for eight days. At another time, with the exact same exposure, the survival rate at eight days was zero. Not a single mouse managed to last eight days. And this was the exact same exposure, the same mechanism, the same uh, x-radiation, the same kinds of population of mice. The only thing that was different was the time of exposure. What that tells you is that the DNA repair mechanisms, the liver enzymes that detoxify uh, agents within the body, the entire metabolic system that protects the body shifts over 24 hours. Frankly, you are not the same person at two in the afternoon as you are at two in the morning. And nothing is going to be exactly the same. Not the effect of pharmaceutical agents, not the effect of toxins, nothing is going to be exactly the same. And we should take advantage of that to, to increase the ability to treat cancer uh, and decrease the side effects. Pharmaceutical agents, such as chemotherapy agents, have rhythms in their side effects. In addition, some of the cancers seem to, to divide at such a high rate of speed that they escape the circadian rhythm. So your normal cells have a circadian rhythm when, in fact, there's a point when they are not dividing particularly rigorously. The cancer cells may be dividing at that time rigorously, and if you aim the chemotherapy drug at that point, you will minimize the damage to the the normal tissue and maximize the damage that you inflict on the cancer cells.
4: Hey, hey, Don. Um, we have about a minute or two left, but I, I was curious to learn that if, if if your research and the research of your colleagues in this field has trickled out to the mainstream medical community, such that GPs, you know, are aware of of this science, or they could have an understanding of how to integrate it into wellness checkups. We, we 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 joke that you know people go to the doctor and they never ask you what are you eating. You know to figure out what's wrong with you, you know should they be asking you, are you sleeping you know are you do do you work the night shift are these things that that you've seen starting to trickle out to to regular g p s
5: no um i have not i I know the a m a is now becoming more aware of it the the association uh of night shift and rotating shift work with uh, an increased risk for breast cancer, now this is a a slight but significant increase after many years of of being on shift work, um, attracted the AMA's attention. Uh, But uh, this has not really gotten to the the average practitioner. I I often give uh, talks to physicians, and you've seen the talk, uh, Matt, Uh, It's the sort of thing I would talk about with with a group of uh, physicians, say, in Grand Rounds. And typically the response is astonishment. Um, That can't be true. I mean, how could we not know? And and the answer is they're not taught. Um, The the present theory of homeostasis, while very uh, important and, and a very useful concept, has been taken so far that biological systems are almost taught as being static entities that they're all the same at different times of day that there are no real rhythms and that anything you do to a human being is the same at different times of day and that's just flat out wrong um it's just not true um and and uh, I wrote a book uh, myself uh, called chrono bioengineering um to try and get this out but my colleagues and I um have been trying to to make the medical community aware of this for many years. That study I told you about with the radiation was in the 70s. There was also a study on um, the effects of chemotherapy agents on mice populations after being inoculated with leukemia cells, and they were able to show that survivalship uh, with these treatments varied by almost 200 percent, just based on the time when the chemotherapy agent was given. A survivorship varying from 40% of the population to almost 95%. And that was just the time-of-day effect. And these is, this has been known for years in, in this community. For some reason, it is not well known in um, the medical community at large, uh, and it's certainly not known in the lay population.
4: Well, I mean, I'm glad that we have people like you to pave the way. Hopefully this will eventually reach that point. But again, the science is absolutely fascinating and Clearly, this is something that more people need to know about, so I'd love to do another show uh, with you in a couple of months to see if there's been a little more stickiness uh from from that angle because clearly this is this is really relevant uh data, so I can't thank you enough for choosing to do what you do and and it's just I'm, i I don't know maybe I'm the most fascinated by it i I think this is just incredible stuff.
5: Well, I would like to point out that I, I'm not one of the giants in the field. Uh, there are Chuck Scheisler and, and Dave Dinges and Francois Levy, the people who are really the the uh, Jurgen Ashoff, the, the people who have really um, gone and and set the, the groundwork, that have really been the people who have blazed the trail. I, I'm just sort of walking the trail, looking around and wondering why nobody's coming with me.
4: <laughs> okay. uh, I think
5: I think I, I just feel lonely. And what, well, you've got what bothers me us. most is I think there are people who have not survived treatments. There are people uh, who have suffered that may have died. And the reason for this is that biological rhythms were not taken into account. And I find that just unconscionable.
4: Yep. Well, keep up the good fight and uh, good luck with everything in your future research.
5: Thank you very much.
4: Thank I you, Professor Don Thank you. Take care. I mean, do it, 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 you see where I'm, I'm really fascinated by it? It's because yeah. you could eat all the kale you want, you could live on in the cleanest air imaginable, but if for some reason there are these influences that, that impact you that you have no idea about and the doctors don't know how to think about, mm-hmm. you could still get sick and die. I was most fascinated about his concept
0: of working a normal schedule and getting normal sleep hours. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't
4: happen.
2: I also think because we live in a world of screens now, like I read in the New York Times that, like, for example, having your iPhone against your face right before bed, it, like, (laughs) drops your melatonin levels. Right. throws off your circadian rhythm so like just like having these like light screens everywhere yeah you know the real big over stimulates you well the vampire
4: lights they say the vampire lights what's that that those are like when you turn off too much twilight Quiet, quiet, you (laughs) when you turn off your electronic (laughs) equipment there's always like one light that's on that tells you it's plugged in the router yeah anything yeah there's always a light that it's not really off but it's like telling you it's still alive you know, and mm-hmm. that you know, they call vampire appliances because they still suck electricity even when they're off. It's minuscule, but it, it adds up. Anyway, with just that, having the light, you know, even living my train like I do, you know, it's just you never even know it's gonna mess you up. What's gonna come into your living room? What? <laughs> <laughs> or my children train. running to the yeah, bed in the middle yeah. of the night? Right? Exactly. Exactly. Daddy. Well, in any case, this is a good show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as uh, I did, Erica. Yeah?
2: Yeah, I, absolutely. Eric's
4: going to keep gonna be our groupie. <laughs> I'm
2: right down the street, you, so watch out. You get That's your right.
4: paycheck at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> all righty then. Well, now it is time for our closing sequence.
5: Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets.
3: Have you ever seen a grown man naked?
5: And so, to
4: all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping.
3: You are a meathead.
4: Oh, my goof. You've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me
3: cancer.
0: Okay, folks, that's tonight's show, our 247th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer.
4: Okay, we'd like to thank our in-studio guests, our thank fabulous you. interns, Tim and Kim Matt Beckett, the lovely morning Sweet, Allie Ward. Erica Latte, Lorna Brunel, Don McEachern, and the fabulous Kenny Cannon and Andy Goodman. Thank you so much. Next week's show, 248. In the kitchen, cooking and cancer. In the spotlight, Jeff Serlin, a colon cancer survivor, uh, founder of Sea Wellness Anti-Cancer Foods. Uh, annette Ramke and kendall Stock from kicking cancer in the kitchen they're both health coaches and they're both young adult survivors of breast cancer annette and hodgkins kendall gonna be a wonderful show continuing our trend in nutrition and food and stupid cancer if you've missed any of our past shows all 246 of them download them all for free on itunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org remember folks If it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Chemo Deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 7 p.m. Eastern. Have a great week, folks. Later. Later.
0: Bye.